God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gathering of your body. That we can come together weekly and gather together and hear your word, sing praises to you, sing sing the good news to one another, be reminded of the good news even in, in our liturgy, even in the structure of the way our our service comes together. Um, thank you, Lord, for the way you work, your goodness and your grace to remind us of the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray that that would be central to us this morning as we open your word. Spirit of God, um, reveal it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little over two years ago now, let's get, get some history of GLC. We were preaching through Genesis together, do we remember? So this would have been fall of 2020. And uh, we started Genesis when we were at Andrew Riverside Presbyterian Church. And then we did a big chunk of Genesis in the Johnson's backyard during COVID. And then we continued on in Genesis here. So it spanned three locations in two different years. But right in the middle of that, uh, we came to this event recorded in chapter 28 that I said, actually, one day I would love to come back to this on the basis of preaching another text that's going to make direct references to this later on. And so here we are. We're going to come back to it again in a couple of weeks, but listen. Um, come to this event recorded in 28, in which this man named Jacob has a dream. Now, I don't anticipate that everybody remembers every sermon or every series of sermons, but let me just say, right, uh, if you remember, let's just do some review. Jacob was not a particularly nice guy. Okay, so in, in fact, as we read Genesis, I think one of the effects that the author desires for us initially is really not to like him very much as a character for a whole host of reasons. It's kind of a bait and switch. At least initially, we're kind of supposed to not like him very much. He's extremely selfish and self-centered. He doesn't make, doesn't make decisions out of care for others. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He makes decisions out of care for himself. And actually, what he does oftentimes hurts others. But then it's in the midst of that, it's in the midst of that self-centeredness, selfishness, sin, that God declares good news to Jacob, right? And then it's at that point, so this is what I mean by bait and switch. It's at that point that I think we're supposed to see our, our story there, right? So Jacob is this historical figure, but we're supposed to see in him, oh, okay, so you're talking about me, right? And I think that this runs so counterintuitive to the way we're wired when we read stories. We've talked about this before, but it's so easy to, to read myself into the hero of the story of whatever story I'm reading. Try to make myself out to be the hero. And we do this when we read the Bible too, which is why we get to, you know, these sections of Scripture and we end up somehow making these figures in the Bible like Jacob heroic when we retell these stories to our kids. Like somehow we retell the story of Judges to our kids and Samson's a hero, right? I mean, we make these mistakes because we have this inclination that we want to read read ourselves as, as a hero of the story, when in fact that's not the case with Jacob. Very self-centered, very sinful, and actually there's this picture of grace. In the midst of that, God declares good news. How? Well, he has this dream, which he sees this tower with staircase leading upwards. Um, some have referred to it as Jacob's ladder, but ladder really isn't the correct English. It's not the right image for like a contemporary English term. You think of a ladder, you picture a ladder, right? So it, this is more... Uh, a tower staircase, right? A big structure with staircases potentially on all four sides, right? That's the idea. And um, he sees this tower. It extends all the way down to earth, but at the top it reaches where God himself is. 
And there are these angels that are going back and forth, mediation between God and man that he's witnessing. And God declares to Jacob in that moment, he says, Behold, I am with you. And when Jacob wakes up, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Okay, so there's this tower, staircase, extends all the way to the Lord. But let's be clear about what's clear in the text. If Jacob is going to be present with the Lord, it's not going to be because he was able to climb that staircase. It's not because he was climbing Jacob's ladder. That's not the point. That's actually the opposite of the point. It's rather going to be because the Lord descended to Jacob. And this is highlighted even more by the reality that this, you know, it's not the first staircase structure of this kind that we see in Genesis with an aim of reaching the heavenlies. It's the second one. You remember where the first one is. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And that one came about by self-sufficient human effort and autonomy. Men trying to, by their own efforts, reach up to God. And how does that end? It ends in disaster. And yet in Genesis 28, we see the exact same kind of structure. The exact same kind of staircase. Tower staircase. But rather than only attempting to reach God, this one actually does extend all the way to Him. And that's because, rather than being fueled by human effort, this one's initiated entirely by God, right? I mean, Jacob is sleeping. Jacob's not climbing. Jacob's not building. Jacob's sleeping, and he's sleeping much in the same way that Abraham is sleeping when God makes his covenant with him. You remember? So, okay. Jacob's sleeping rather than mankind, rather than Jacob building and ascending to reach God, which, by the way, is what every other worldview teaches, whether it's an irreligious worldview that says you can be your own God or a moralistic religious worldview that says you have to do enough or perform enough to reach God. Here you have God descending the staircase to Jacob. God coming to Jacob. God moving entirely to Jacob. Behold, I am with you. Okay. As we noted in Genesis together, right, as I just alluded to, every other belief system functions with mankind reaching up to God, trying to become like God, or trying to Find God from within themselves. Like, that's very common today. Trying to find God from within me. And yet, Christianity is entirely different. It's entirely unique. Because only in Christianity do you have this vision for life that requires this recognition that such an endeavor is impossible. Like, it requires that of us. Jesus, when he's talking to people, talks this way. He tells people, you know, it's not, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. The sick, right? He's not saying that some people are healthy. He's saying some people recognize their sickness and some don't. Christianity requires a recognition of our neediness. He starts the Sermon on the Mount, as I say, a million times. But let's just pound it into our brains. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So everything that I'm going to say about transformation hinges on this recognition of your spiritual poverty. Like, this is how Jesus talks. And therefore, it's God who must not only reach down to us, but who actually comes down into human history, that we might be with Him. If we're going to be with God, it's going to have to be entirely His initiative and movement toward us. And here, John ends his prologue. So we're at the end of the prologue. We did it. We made it. Um, he ends his prologue by shifting his attention to the very moment when God does just that. He descended into human history that we might know Him. 
He comes entirely to us. This is known as the doctrine of the incarnation. And you know, admittedly, it can be both very confusing and really surprising. And those two reactions oftentimes are inextricably bound together. They're tied up. I mean, it's confusing on the one hand because it's genuinely hard to understand how God himself could become man, could become human. But it's also confusing because we're surprised by it. Generation after generation is surprised by it when we read it because we have a hard time understanding more generally the reason that God would have to do such a thing to begin with. We're so steeped in this idea that we have to figure out how to save ourselves, which is evidenced by the fact that humanity is always attempting to build some kind of tower and climb it in order to, to reach God or to become like God in our various approaches to religion. And John 1, 14-18, this is a great place of Scripture to turn to in order to address some of that confusion. John sets out to answer five questions about the Incarnation. What, where, who, why, and how. So this is on your sermon page of the Liturgy Packet. has that outline for you. Five questions of the Incarnation. What, where, who, why, how. Some of you might see that and think, this sounds familiar. That's because when we were preaching through Zechariah, Zechariah takes a very similar approach when he was talking about the Incarnation. And so our outline was something along the lines of what, who, why, and how. Okay? And here we see it again in John. And you know, um, it's intentional. There are a lot of voices right now that contend, you know, Christians, Christians if they're going to reach culture, they really need to unhitch from the Old Testament, is what people say. And John, John would say, yeah, good luck with that. Right? Because everything that I'm about to write to you is actually steeped in what the Old Testament proclaims. And actually, this gospel that the Old Testament points you to is the same gospel that I'm pointing you to. The same need that the Old Testament points you to is the same need that I'm pointing you to. Right? We just need to understand its purpose. And so this helps us. So um, by the time we get through these questions, we'll come to find that John's central aim is to remind us of the very thing that God described uh, to Jacob, that he showed Jacob, that he wanted Jacob to understand. That he's the only means of our rescue. Because every single one of these questions will give us another piece of evidence related to whether or not we can actually climb that staircase to reach God. What we come to find in this text is that this word, this eternally pre-existent second person of the Trinity, came to earth as the very one our hearts so desperately needed. That's John's argument. So we see this in John's answer to these five questions. Let's begin with the what of the incarnation. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. This might be the most theologically precise, also um, intentionally clearly written definition. Just straightforward definition of the Incarnation in all of Scripture. John defines it here. It's the Word, God Himself, the eternally preexistent, He's always existed, second person of the Trinity, He is God and He's with God, as we've seen, who's become flesh. And He dwells among us. If, if you look, He dwelt among us. If you, looked, if you look back um, on the verses we, we've covered up to this point, You'll actually see that here this term word or logos is finally reintroduced. Okay, so 
We looked at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But now John hasn't used that term, the Word, at all until finally we get here to this very important verse on the incarnation. That's intentional. John wants to get our attention. John's using very forceful terminology that I really think would be quite shocking for a first century audience. F.F. Bruce does a good job of capturing the force behind John's words, behind the argument he has here. He says, when the word became flesh, God became man. That's what happened. I mean, there's really no other way to read this, but, but John goes further. He goes further than that. He doesn't stop there. Not only does he become man, it's not like the word becomes man, but he remains man in some place that's unattainable for us to see and hear and understand. He, he doesn't keep himself removed from us. But he dwelled among us. He, he made his dwelling among us, the text says, which literally means to tabernacle. That's the meaning of the word dwelt. Literally, it's tabernacle, or he pitched his tent. He lived in a tent among us. Just like Jacob in Genesis 28, this God is coming to dwell with his people. And it's happening in the context of sin and rebellion. So with Jacob, it's happening in the context of his sin and the consequences of his sin. But here in John 1, it's happening in the context of our sin. Remember last week, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Okay, so this is the context into which John now writes that, that this word tabernacled with us, pitched his tent with us in the, middle, in the midst of our sin. And so again, remembering John's audience, as we talked about a few weeks ago, I would argue Jews and spiritually seeking Greeks familiar with their Old Testament, wanting to know the answer to this question, who is this Christ, this Messiah that the Old Testament talks so much about? And these Jews and Greeks scattered abroad would all be reading their Greek Old Testament and would recognize this word in relation to the tabernacle that we see in the Old Testament, which was this um, tent that went with Israel, present with Israel, in which God dwelled uh, in which God was present with his people, he dwelled with his people, he went with his people. But for those Jews who had studied a little Hebrew, they would also recognize that this corresponding Hebrew word for dwell commonly referred to the glory of God, like the presence of God among his people, specifically at the temple, specifically in the tabernacle. We just finished preaching through Zechariah, and I told you like the change from Zechariah into John is very intentional because... John's echoing back to Zechariah a lot. Zechariah is the most often quoted Old Testament prophet in the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John himself alludes back there a lot. And so I think John appears to be intentionally pointing his readers back to sections of Zechariah like this. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, right? And we talked about how, like, you go through Zechariah, and there's not a lot of evidence that we can find that the glory of the Lord returned to the temple after exile. And yet there's this promise that his glory would return, that he would dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And it's with that background 
that John now tells us that this word is now the true and ultimate tabernacle and temple. He's the very presence of God. He came to pitch his tent among us, to dwell among us. Shouldn't surprise us then that John continues by saying, and we have seen his glory, if you look there, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It reminds us of Jacob saying, surely the Lord is in this place. Grant Osborne writes, if we have seen his glory, no wonder there was no longer a need for the temple. All that the temple meant was wrapped up in Jesus. The glory of, the, of God, once sealed in the temple on penalty of death, was now open to all in Jesus. In other words, here we see our first piece of evidence. In this, you know, this is the what of the incarnation, and it's here we see first piece of evidence that any requirement on humanity to somehow climb their way to God is simply impossible. It's an impossible endeavor. The temple displayed God's glory because he was present there and he met with his people over the sacrifice, but his glory was still not fully visible. Not in a way his people could experience. There's basically universal agreement here that John has in mind with, in this section, this narrative in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapters 33 and 34. In which Moses asks God to see his glory. He says, show me your glory. And we see this, you know, in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verses 17 and 18, which we'll come back to. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. And so here you have this. Show me your glory reference back to Exodus 33, 34, in which Moses asks God, show me your glory. God replies, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I, I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so he instructs Moses to stand in the cleft of this rock where he'll be covered so the Lord's glory could pass in front of him safely for Moses. And the Lord passed before him. This is what he proclaims. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. As you read through the Old Testament, what you come to find is that there are two very unique words that serve as descriptors for God's glory. When God reveals his glory, what he, what he puts on display during that time is his abounding steadfast love and his faithfulness. And it's in that context that we see these two words, descriptive of God's glory in Exodus 34, steadfast love and faithfulness, actually corresponding here with grace and truth. The gracious, steadfast love of God on the basis of the truth of who he is. The faithful one. The one who will be faithful to his covenant. Why? Because it falls on his shoulders and not upon ours. Right? This is the what of the incarnation. The incarnation is nothing less than God himself. The one and only son from the father. The eternally preexistent second person of the trinity. Pitching his tent with us. Tabernacling with us. In order to show us his glory. So that we can know of his steadfast love and faithfulness. His grace and truth. 
even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of being undeserving of that, and even in the midst of deserving the opposite. And so that naturally leads very briefly to the where of the incarnation. So just real quick, just so that it's not assumed, right? Where does God manifest himself in this way? Verse 14 again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We won't spend a lot of time here, but the where of the incarnation, as John has already stated in verses prior, is the very world he created. He came to his own. Those who had rejected him. Displayed his glory, his grace and truth, that they might know him. Remember from last week, the light shines on everyone, whether they realize it or not. You know, so Jesus came and revealed his glory, whether we realize his glory or not. And many, as we read John, will not. You know, we're going to come across narrative after narrative in which people meet Jesus. They see this Jesus, but they reject him as Savior. They reject his glory, but his glory is revealed nonetheless, right? So um, I should say here, this term, among us, it's further evidence of another important aspect to John that we'll touch on as we go. And, and actually, this is true of all the gospel accounts. And it's the claim of eyewitness testimony. The Word became flesh and dwelt among John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among his other disciples. He walked with them. He ate with them. He taught them. They witnessed these events of the gospel that we'll come to read about in the months ahead. And we'll see evidences for that eyewitness testimony as we go. If there's a companion book that I would encourage you to read, pick up Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. It's really a good companion text if you're reading any of the Gospel accounts because Bauckham essentially says, man, it is really hard to argue against the reality that these Gospel accounts have been written by first century Palestinian Jews who are eyewitnesses. Or, or based on the accounts of, like for Luke, first century, Palestinian Jews who are eyewitnesses of these specific events. Okay, but, but the point here is to emphasize again that this tabernacle, tabernacling happens among those same people in the world that rejected God. Remember the definition of world in John that we looked at last week that we'll have to keep coming back to? The world in John is not the universe, but the created order, especially of human beings and human affairs in active rebellion against its maker. That's the where of the incarnation. And here we have our second piece of evidence that any requirements upon humanity to somehow climb our way to God is simply impossible. He came to a world that fundamentally rejected him. He came to a world that had no desire of God, that if there was a way to get to God, they'd run in the other direction. And so it's no coincidence that John now shifts his focus to the who of the incarnation. So following the logic here, if we're unable to redeem ourselves, is there anyone who's uniquely qualified to be our redeemer? Verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. So wait, I just said, so I just said that here we see John shifting focus to the one who's uniquely qualified. And who does John shift our focus to? Well, he talks about John the Baptist. Is this the one with these unique qualifications to save? No, actually, this verse once again wants to make it clear. In a lot of ways, it restates what John said in verse 8. Do you remember 
um, verse 8, John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And here John, the author of the text, describes John the Baptist in a similar, similar way, both to make sure there's absolutely no confusion about this point related to the reality that John's not the one with the saving qualifications, but also to tell us something about the identity of our Savior. Tell us something about the nature of Christianity. What, what makes it so unique? Why? Because John bore witness about him. Listen to what he said. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So this light who came into the world, this word who tabernacled among us to display his glory is now being spoken of by John as a person in history, by John the Baptist, as a person in history that he can point to, that he can show others, that he can point others to. This is not some hypothetical or metaphorical word. It's not, you know, something shrouded in mysticism. It's not like, well, when John uses he in chapter 1 in this introduction, he's, he's talking about it metaphorically. No. This section rules that out. Rather, we have someone who came into the world, was known, was observed. John's purpose in placing the testimony of John the Baptist in this spot is to now identify Jesus that we're going to read about next week with the incarnate word. This is he of whom I said. And what did John the Baptist say? Well, let's... Let's read his testimony again together. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So, you know, here John the Baptist doesn't stop at simply identifying the word with Jesus of Nazareth, but he goes on to show us why Jesus was uniquely qualified to save us and more to the point why he was not. He shows us why the world needed Jesus uniquely, which we'll get to in more depth in a moment. This is being written, we have to understand, to a culture in which those who came first always had precedent, right? So, during this time, the firstborn son in the family received the inheritance. The older leaders in the synagogue whose ministry came prior to younger leaders were given more honor and authority regardless of what or how they were leading. And John is born first, about six months prior to Jesus. John's ministry comes first, comes before Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes after him. And so, first century readers might assume from that that John's the one with authority in some sense over Jesus. That maybe it's his sending power that's about to push Jesus onto the public stage. That his ministry should be honored in some sense to a greater degree because it comes first. But John just denies all, all those claims. He says, essentially he says, you don't know what you're saying. He ranks before me because he, he was before me. You think I came before him? He's creator. I'm, I'm creation. I have a beginning. I have an origin in time and space. He created time and space. Do you really think finite creation can save itself? Finite creation and rebellion against its infinite creator needs nothing less than the creator himself stepping into time and space. And we see him uniquely in that man, John the Baptist says, the person of Jesus Christ. Of course he ranks before me. The idea here is, before I was born, he already was. So what are we talking about here? And in it, we see our third piece of evidence. Right? This is the who of the incarnation. Our third piece of evidence that any requirements upon humanity to somehow 
climb their way to God, to work their way to God, is simply impossible. Creation can't save themselves, itself. We were in need of our Creator, the one who came before us, the one whom before we were even born already was. But it's here that John now elaborates further. You know, again, following the logic, he focuses on the why of the incarnation because, sure, we uniquely needed Jesus. He's creator, we're creation. But that doesn't necessarily go into detail to answer the question of why we can't save ourselves from this problem of sin. Like, yeah, sure, we have the problem of sin. Sure, we're creation and he's creator. But why can't creation just follow hard enough? Why can't we just try hard enough? Why can't we be good enough? Here we see the why of the incarnation, verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We spent an extended amount of time the last couple of weeks looking at the reality that humanity rejected the Word. You know, the light shines on everyone whether we realize it or not. And we did not realize it. That the natural man cannot comprehend the things of God. You know, we can't, we can't comprehend it, so we rejected it. Not understanding it, not desiring it, desiring the opposite, Okay? So where did we leave it last week? Do you remember? If, if we're not Christians because we're somehow smart enough or clever enough, good enough, then how can we know God? And we concluded, the text concluded, that it's only through sheer grace and what He's done that we could never do for ourselves. Right? So verses 12 and 13 show us the sheer grace of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Remember that? Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's sheer grace. And John describes this steadfast love and faithfulness found in Jesus, found in His glory, as grace upon grace. What does this mean? Well, admittedly, okay, so this is a tricky phrase to translate. And I talk a lot about, I don't want to throw stones. (laughs) I do not serve on any translation committees. I want you to understand. All right, um, this, is a, this is a tricky business, translation. Translation's hard. Grace upon grace might not be the best way to describe it. I really do get what it's trying to say, and in some sense it's true. It's grace on top of grace that we've been given. But I think the most natural way to translate it, and the way that, the way that this word that the ESV translates upon is actually translated in almost all other places. Like it's... The, the most natural meaning of that word, but also then I think of the text is grace instead of grace, or as Osborne says, grace in place of, grace in place of grace. I think the reason translators tend to shy away from that is because it seems maybe bizarre at first. Grace instead of grace. Grace in place of grace. What, What does that mean? Well, here's the idea, I think. By God's grace, God's people were given the law. Okay, so it's grace instead of grace. Listen, God's people were given the law. We were in sin. We've been talking about that a lot, right? So the law showed us the heart of God. It showed us the holiness of God. It revealed God's holiness to his people. You know, this is one of the things the law does. So if you're here this morning, you don't have a lot of context for the Bible. That's okay. So we might think, what's in the Old Testament? Well, a portion of the Old Testament is this law that shows us God's holiness. That shows us, like, here is, if we were going to, be able to possibly measure up. Here's God's standard of holiness because He is holy. He is holy. Right? 
So it shows us His holiness, but in addition to those things, the law also shows us our sin. It revealed God's holiness and our sinfulness, and there's a deep grace involved in that. In God revealing the people's sin to the people so that we might be convicted of that sin and turn and repent so that we might see how we've offended God's holiness and turn from it and turn towards Him. So there's this grace present in the law showing people God's perfect holiness, holiness that will come to see is growing bigger every day as Christians. It doesn't in actuality grow bigger, but the more we come to know the Lord, the bigger our, our concept of God's holiness is, right? And it shows us our sinfulness, sinfulness that we'll understand our capacity for more and more every day. That doesn't mean we're sinning more as Christians, but the more we understand our capacity for sin, the more we rely on what Christ has done, you know, right? Okay, so part of our growth as Christians. Some people might ask, though, you know, so in what sense, to understand how the law might be this first grace to us, we, we have to understand a little bit of like, how does it reveal our sin? You know, and I think some of us might say, I could see how it reveals sin in the sense that like, when I fail, right? But what if I don't, what if I can do it? What if I don't fail? And I think that's because we miss the reality that the law actually does something else. It actually, not because the law is bad, but because our hearts are so uh, ill apart from God and apart from His grace and mercy. Our heart's prompt is to sin because of law, right? It's this, like, have you ever been given a rule and you know, Maybe it was a good rule, but the fact that the rule was given made you want to break the rule, right? This prompt that I think all of our hearts have history with. It's this idea that sometimes law itself provokes us into sin because we want the opposite. We just want to break that rule. So like my, my boys play, they've gotten into Madden. Uh, we, have, we inherited long ago a PS3 with some old video games, and I don't really know video games. This one's like it's, it's a version of Madden where, like, Jay Cutler's the Bears quarterback, right? So um, it's pretty ancient. It's been around. Here's what the boys like to do, though. They, they like to play against the Green Bay Packers. And, like, unfortunately, they don't share my love for the Bears. They don't share my affinity for Chicago Bears yet. They do share my animosity toward the Packers. So it's, it's a win. We're getting there. Okay, so... Um, what they like to do is they like to play Green Bay. <laughs> they like to position, like, they know the rules, you know, but the fact that they can break them on this video game is really intriguing, you know? So they position this outside linebacker, like, right on the line of scrimmage. And right before Aaron Rodgers hikes the ball, they just blitz in, you know, so that when it gets hiked, you know, when the ball, when the ball snapped, Aaron Rodgers just gets demolished. And, and, you know, there's a flag. Green Bay moves forward. And they do this so many times in a row to the point where like Green Bay's on the one yard line, but Aaron just keeps getting smashed and they are just cracking up. They think it's hysterical. And you know, as a parent, I'm torn, you know? Because on the one hand, I couldn't be more proud. On the other hand, like, okay, so boys, you're kind of seeing how like knowing that you can get away with breaking this rule, like knowing that the rule's in place, maybe it's even a good rule, but you can break it our hearts kind of are inclined toward that. The rule itself provokes us to break it at times. Why? Because, listen, problem with our heart. The problem with the law was that while there was certainly grace in revealing our sin to us, in showing us that not only could we never measure up, but that we would always want the opposite, 
It wasn't the, the kind of grace that could save. In other words, if the law could save us, it would be because we could follow it perfectly. And if we could follow the law perfectly, it would be because we're without sin. And if we were without sin, then we're not in need of a Savior. But the law couldn't save us precisely because we couldn't follow. You know? The Old Testament shows us again and again that God's people think, if we can just make the right reforms, if we can just do the right things, if we can just be obedient enough, if we can just pray enough, then maybe we can usher in God's kingdom. Maybe we can bring an end to all the problems we face. But over and over again, they come to find that regardless of their circumstances, regardless of how good their circumstances are, they're unable to follow the law, and indeed they're provoked into sin. The law can't save them, not because there's something wrong with the law, but because there's something wrong with their hearts. And so Jesus comes as grace in place of that grace, instead of that grace. The grace of the law actually points forward to Jesus. It's not, see, and this is why I pointed out, it's not grace upon grace in the sense that like, you have the grace upon the law of the law plus Jesus. The law plus Jesus. It's not, it. so it's not like the law was grace and the law is good for us to follow and so I still need to keep the law, but I also need Jesus. That's, the Apostle Paul will tell us in Galatians, that's a false gospel. You know, if, if we end up holding to a law plus gospel, law plus Jesus mentality, Paul says, you know, we're severed from grace. We're severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Christ is of no benefit to us. And so Jesus comes in place of that. He's, he's the true and ultimate law. He's the one who actually is able not only to show us our sin, but to do something about it. And he does. That's why he came. That's why it's such good news. That's why we have this explanatory four in verse 17 again. So verse 16 starts with four. It's a note of explanation. Why? Because John's telling us the why of the incarnation. Why? Four, right? Here in 17, we have an explanatory for. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace and truth found in Jesus Christ, his steadfast love and faithfulness, now stands in place of the law. It is what saves you. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. And actually, a precondition to being a Christian is the realization that you can't save yourself. It's a requirement. We have to realize that. We have to recognize that. We have to recognize our depravity so that we can throw ourselves on the mercies of God. Again, understanding this, I think, better helps us read our Bibles. Like we said last week, um, Jesus is the true and ultimate bread from heaven. There's this true and ultimate theme in John. He's the true and ultimate bread from heaven, but that doesn't mean the original bread that the Lord provided for His people in the wilderness wasn't itself a good and gracious gift to God's people. Like Jesus was the true and better bread, the true and ultimate bread, because he could truly satisfy where the first bread could not. The fact that Jesus is the one to whom the law points, the fact that his grace and mercy now actually can save us in the ways the law could never save, doesn't mean that the law wasn't a good and gracious gift to God's people. Of course it was, but it was centrally good in that it points us to Jesus. It's centrally good in that we come to find, I can't do this, so I need to hope and pray that, that God does this thing that I'm unable to do and he answers us in Jesus Christ. He answers our cry for mercy. So this is the why of the incarnation and in it we see our fourth piece of evidence that any requirements upon humanity to somehow climb our way to God is simply impossible. We could not follow the law. Jesus had to come precisely because we could not save ourselves. 
But how was He able to save us? Verse 18, it's the how of the Incarnation. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So, circling back, you know, John shows us why he started verse 1 the way he did. And we'll keep seeing that. You know, why he starts, starts his Gospel account the way that he does. He ties everything back into verse 1. The how of the Incarnation. In other words, God said to Moses, he couldn't see his face and live. But John says that now for the first time in human history, people can see God in the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. Being fully God, like this is what uniquely qualifies God to be mankind's redeemer when we cannot save ourselves. The fact that he is the only God who is at the Father's side. He is God and he is with God. And he's made himself known to us. Made God known to us. Being fully God, he was actually able to uphold the law perfectly before the Father. Deserving at the end of his life to have the Father embracing him on the basis of that perfect life. Being fully man, he was able to stand in mankind's place at the cross, taking our punishment for sin that we deserved because of that failure. This is the how of the incarnation, and in it we see the fifth piece of evidence that any requirement on humanity to somehow climb our way to God is impossible. But not only that, you know, we see that God descended. You know, He descended to us in the person of Jesus Christ and became the mediator between God and man that we so badly needed. So you go to Genesis 28 and you have these angels that are going back and forth mediating between God and man. And when we get to chapter 2 of John, we'll see Jesus pointing back to Genesis 28 and saying, don't you understand? It's talking about me. This is my ministry. This is the central theme in this set of verses. There's one reality that, that this incarnation teaches us this morning. The central theme. It's this. Jesus stepped into our world uniquely qualified to be our only means of rescue. God Himself stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ uniquely qualified to be our only means of rescue. And we see that means of rescue. We proclaim that means of rescue every week when we come to this table and we see that this Word who became flesh had that flesh broken. His blood spilled in our place that we might know God, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might, through faith in what He's done and not in what we've done, now know God and, and have a life that reflects that. And so this morning, we proclaim this to one another. If you're a believer, this meal is for you because here we see a proclamation of the gospel that you believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, we do ask you to participate. Observe. Ask questions. I, I host a Q&A, super informal, after the sermon. I'm, I'm up here after the service is over with. Would love for people to come and ask questions. But now I invite you forward. Take the elements with you back to your seats and let's proclaim this once for all gospel to one another.